1 John 4, 7 through 12 and 19 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to be in worship today, and thank you for the chance to come before your word. God, I'm thankful uh, and so appreciative of a band who's willing to uh, prepare and work hard uh, and practice and lead us in worship. God, what a gift that is. God, we pray over Aaron and Autumn and their family as they're away this week. Thank you for their gifts, and I pray this will be an encouraging weekend for them. Uh, and thank you for all those that are stepping up uh, to fill that role. God, I'm thankful for a, a safe place to worship today. God, uh, my heart is heavy on world conflicts all around the world and places where it's not safe to gather for worship. And so I pray for peace in our world, uh, and I pray for healing and pray for justice. God, we thank you for the power your word has uh, to be at work in our own hearts and lives and the way that uh, you transform us. God, we uh, see your great love for your people, and we trust, God, that your love is what softens us, your love is what changes us, and so we trust in you today. Bless this time that we share in your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You know, I was thinking uh, this week about what the world needs, and what the world needs now is love, sweet love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, not just love for some, but for everyone. Or as, you know, maybe, maybe uh, what I could say is all, all you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. If I should stay, I'd be only be in your way, so I'll go now, but I'll think of you every step of the way, and I will always love you. I will always love you. You know, when a man loves a woman, can't keep his mind on nothing else. He'd trade the world for a good thing he has found. No one, no one, no one can get in the way of what I feel for you. Romeo, take me someplace where we can be alone, and I'll be waiting. And all that's left to do is run. You'll be the prince, and I'll be the princess. Wait, I'm supposed to be the prince. Anyway, it's a love story, baby. Just say yes. I could keep going. I'm going to stop because I'm embarrassing myself. But you get the idea. If you don't... If you, don't, uh, if you don't recognize some of those songs, if I sang them for you, it wouldn't help you. So the tune, I couldn't do any justice to any of them. Although Whitney Houston, I might could keep, give her a run for her money. No, I couldn't. Lo love is a, is a popular concept, one that has been sung about uh, probably more than any other 
in the world. I did find just, you know, Google find, you can find all kinds of interesting things. I found one, one study that researched the love song, tracked it all the way back to some 8th century people in Spain and some 12th century European troubadours to kind of track down the history. And they, they came up with an estimate of somewhere around 100 million love songs that have been either recorded, written down, or, or you know, audio recorded. 100 million of them. In every variety, every emotion, every possible form or fashion, about every aspect of love, from falling into love, falling out of love, to breakups, to re-get-togethers, all different types of love and moments in love have all been captured in songs, in all kinds of different rhythms and every kinds of way. Everyone knows what love is, right? Except for all of us struggle to understand what love is. You want it, you get it, then you lose it, it comes and it goes, it ebbs, it flows, Time seems to bring it and then take it away. We all struggle with knowing and understanding and appreciating and valuing and holding on to love. But we all long for it. There is a deep in our soul's desire to love and be loved by somebody. What love is and where we get it and where it comes from, those are all questions we have in our hearts. And they are given to us by God. This desire, this need to be loved is a God-given need. And one, I want to tell you that he and he alone can ultimately fill that love. He sends graciously people around us as vessels of that love, and we delight and enjoy, in the, enjoy those gifts. But God is the source of love. We as Christians and even non-Christians can readily quote one part of 1 John 4, 8, whether or not you know the reference. We people all around the world can quote, God is love. Can we not? And yet, what does that mean? What does it mean to actually be somebody who believes in that and follows that, especially when you turn to other places where Jesus says things like, love your enemies? How can these possibly go together, enemy and love? We have passed halfway through our fall series on God's attributes, Behold Your God. And so today we are taking on two interrelated uh, attributes. They're all related, of course, but these two, God's love and God's grace. In order to appreciate God's love this morning, I thought with, rather than starting most, most of these attributes, we started with God and worked our way to us. But today I want to start with us, work our way to God, and then work back to us. And so as we think about the way we experience love, and we ex- the way we think about uh, relationships, your spouse, your kids, your parents, coworkers, friends, you, you think about the joy and the, the, the pleasure and the satisfaction that you get from love, but you also think about the struggle and the challenge and the trial and all the hardships that come along with it. And so of all the different great things we could say about love, I, I at least want to put this before you, see if you agree with this, that love is challenging. Love is challenging. Why? Because love is, a, is, a, is something between, in this case I'm talking about between people, and people are challenging. Are we not? People are difficult. Even the people we love the most, the people that know us the best, the people that we value the most, that can be sometimes the most challenging of our relationships. We are, as people, we are up and down. Things come and go good times and bad times, and in each of those times, the, the, how we feel toward one another can wax and wane. In addition, we just, we're not very patient people. 
We get, we get tired of waiting on people to change, and so we get impatient. Uh, we get irritated with people like our own spouse. I, I know, not me, of course, but other people I've heard get irritated with a spouse. Uh, our kids, I mean, we have, we have there's something, uh, when your kids are born, there's this like overwhelming joy and delight that you just like cannot imagine until you get there. And yet kids will make you want to pull your hair out sometimes. Not, not the ones that are in the room, of course, because, you know, it's other ones, right? Um, we, we in, in, in English, add on top of the, you know, the human challenges, when we think about love uh, in English, that's a, that's a weird word. Because we say things like, I love my mom, I love my wife, I love my kids. I also really love a good barbecue sandwich and certain athletic teams. Like, we use the word love to, for, for all kinds of different things. What do we even mean by love? Uh, another challenge in our world is that our, our, our cultural perception of what love is is different from time to time and season to season. Love is misunderstood and misrepresented. Sometimes in our culture, broadly, when we talk about love, we just mean affirm. We just mean affirm. Anything that, that you say to love you is to affirm you and say, I agree and I support you. And anything other than that in our world is sometimes questioned as love. A few weeks ago, I was invited to speak at uh, Hillcrest's FCA, the Hillcrest High School. And uh, they said, you know, you can speak about whatever you want, but we do have this list of topics students have asked about. And one of the ones on their list that I, that I thought was interesting and so I took on for the week was loving people when it's hard to do. Loving people when it's hard to do. I thought that was a great, a great topic. And so I try to think through the difference between people who are easy to love and people who are hard to love, right? What, why is it that sometimes love is easy for us and sometimes love is hard for us, challenging for us? I, I think that it kind of our default posture, default way we relate to love is that we, here, I'm, I'm always used to having two hands. I don't know how I'm going to do this hand gesture now with one hand. I'll figure it out. Uh, we put things on a scale. There we go. We put things on a scale and we balance out the good versus the bad, right? We, so our, our default posture toward any relationship it, subconsciously is we make a list of here's all the things I like about somebody and it goes in the pros side of the scale. And then here's all the things that are kind of challenging about that person, kind of difficult, and it goes on the cons side. And as long in our, in our kind of our default posture toward love, I can love somebody. It's easy to love somebody if there's more things on the pros side than on the cons side, right? As I look at them, that's kind of our, the way we naturally respond, naturally think about love. But here's the problem. When we come to the Bible, we read things like 1 John, I quoted you part of 1 John 4, 8, but let's read the whole verse. It says, if any, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So when I come back to my little balance here, if I've got somebody who's got a lot of things in the con side and it's really hard to love, 1 John 4, 8 says, if I don't love, apparently I don't know God. It doesn't say anything about the pros and cons. Difficult or easy to love, it doesn't let me off the hook just because somebody is hard to love. So here's my, my working theory about love. Because love is such a popular concept, 100 million songs, all the top you know, charts, songs, all the expressions and culture and language, all this. Because love is such a common human experience and because our secular world creates its own version of what love really is, both Christian and non-Christians are tempted to a very 
bad definition of love and therefore a very bad practice of love. Our understanding of love, if our understanding of love is bad and our experience of love is bad, it's because we're looking to the wrong place to understand what love is. If we're looking inside somebody else or even inside our own natural desires and we're weighing out the pros and cons of somebody, we're looking in the wrong place to understand love. If we are left to just how somebody's actions, somebody's pros and cons balance out, we're gonna have a very short ability to love somebody. That's a very limited supply. That source is not a very deep source. But instead, we should be looking somebody else. If you, and by if, I mean all of you are, but I'm going to ask it as a question because it sounds nicer. If you're struggling to love somebody like you should, I invite you to better experience the love of God. Love is challenging, but the solution to that isn't just to look deeper in somebody else. It's to look to the author and the source and the fountain and the foundation of love itself. To look to God. So if we look to him as the solution, here's my invitation to you. Behold God's unconditional love. Behold God's unconditional love. I want you to see that there is a love greater than anything else in the world. And the degree to which we've experienced that love in God is the degree to which we're able to love other people. If we have a problem loving somebody else, I, I want to argue that it, it is because of our experience, we have a lack of experience of loving, of being loved by and receiving the love of God. God is love. He is the very definition of love. He is the source of love. All love, all true love comes from him. At the very core of who he is, he is love. The very beginning of this series, we started on the easiest of all topics, the Trinity. And you all said, oh, that was easy. You didn't even have to preach that. No, it's challenging. But the thing that we delighted in that week as we celebrated God being three in one is that because God is Father, Son, and Spirit, He has been in an eternal relationship of love, meaning forever. Before there was anything else in this world, First John, John 17, 24, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given to me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before there was anything in the world? He was in a perfect, loving relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. He was not primarily judge. He was not primarily power. He hadn't yet created things but he was in a loving relationship. That's why we can say God at his very core is love. God needed nothing. He was not bored. He, was not, he did not need to create something so he would have something to love. He is love because he has always been loving. And that is critical. That is valuable to us as we look to him and we learn what love is. And as we display, as we, as we search the scriptures, how does he display that love? What does love look like? If I could give just one adjective to his, one descriptor of his love, I settled on this word. God's love is unconditional. God's love is unconditional. I, I could come up with all kinds of ways that it is unconditional. I'm just going to give you a few. God's love is not conditioned by time. God's love is eternal. Do you know, if, if you are a Christian, meaning you have, you've repented of your sins, 
you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, as the one who paid the debt you deserve to pay, and you've believed in him, that means you've been adopted into God's family. Do you, do you know when God started loving you? It wasn't the day you turned from your sins. It was a long time before that. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's the same phrase used in John 17. That Jesus said, uh, you and I loved each other. We had this love before the foundation of the world. God loved us before the foundation of the world. He says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. For everybody who is a Christian, he started loving you before there was anything else in the world. That's eternal love. That's what the definition of eternal is. It doesn't just mean from this point forward. It means always and forever. God's love is not conditioned by time. His love is eternal. It has always existed before time and will always exist forever. Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the coming ages, he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For the rest of eternity and all the ages to come, God is going to be showing you his riches in grace. God's love is infinite, so it cannot be contained by time. God's love is not conditioned by your merits or what you've accomplished. You don't earn God's love, which is to say it is grace. It's a gift. It's something you have been given. Grace is unearned kindness. Grace is part of who God is. It's not something that happened to God after we sinned. So God has always been gracious. This was new to me as I was studying what it means for God's, God to be loving and gracious. God gave good gifts to Adam that he didn't deserve even before he sinned. Have you thought about that? Gifts by nature are unearned. When we sin, we're working against those things, but even just something that we haven't merited, we haven't accomplished something and earned, is a gift. And so God gave good, good gifts to Adam, like trees and fruit and Eve. Those were all things that were unearned. They were gifts of grace. And he gave them to Adam even before sin entered the world. Even Jesus himself, who walked on the earth, before he even grew up, before he had done all the miracles, before he had done anything, Luke 2, 40 talks about, and the favor of God was upon him. The word for favor in the New Testament, same word for grace. God's grace, this is just who God is. He is a God of grace and a God of love. We might have a, a goal for ourselves on trying to, uh, any number of things. Maybe it's saving up a certain amount of money to, to buy something, to some kind of achievement. You may have some kind of goal at work or you're trying to get to certain, some level, of some, uh, something you've accomplished, certain number of things per month or something like that. Or maybe a goal at school where you're checking things off, getting closer to finishing your assignments or getting closer to a degree. And you say, if I get to this point, then here's the reward I get. God's love doesn't work that way. You don't have to check off a certain number of boxes. You don't have to earn a some certain number of, uh, of accomplishments in order to get God's love. God's love is a gift given by grace. God's love is not conditioned by our accomplishments. God's love is not conditioned by being, us being sinless or perfectly holy. Even your sin can't stop the love of God. Do you know that? When we say God's love is un condition. We're saying even your sin can't stop the love of God. If, if I go back to my theory about how our, in our flesh we, we weigh out the pros and cons with somebody. 
This is how we naturally relate to people. I put pros on one side, cons on the other. How, how am I going to love them? Take that same theory now and see, does God's love work that way? Praise God, the answer is no. Romans 5, 6, for a while we were still weak. So here's, here's on the, the, the con side about us. We were weak. The end of the verse says, the ungodly. So which one's winning? Pro or con? Con's winning. What does it say? While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The scales were clearly tipped toward the negative, and yet God showed love. Verse 7 shows us our natural state of how we only consider loving people if, if the scales tip in the pro direction. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. So you hear that in our natural desire. If, if somebody's righteous, say, I, I would show love to them, but only if they're really good. Only, only if them would I give the ultimate sacrifice. But what does Jesus do? What's God's way of relating to us? Verse 8, God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The scales are clearly in the negatives, and God showed love to us. Even, us, even our sin doesn't condition God's love. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, this, this is the only place the, this phrase, great love, shows up in the New Testament. Great love. What's God's great love? Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together by Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Your sin is not a condition on God's love. What we saw last week, Nathan talked about God's righteousness and justice. Doesn't righteousness, doesn't God's holiness mean there must be a payment? Even a need for you to make payment for your sin does not condition God's love because God has already made that payment. Nathan proclaimed the, from the God's word, God is good and holy and righteous and just. He cannot sweep your sins under the rug and just pretend they never happened. He would not be a righteous judge if so. If a judge in our court system saw somebody, the, the jury said he is clearly uh, a murderer. He has clearly committed this, this, this sin against society. He is wrong. If the judge said, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Come here, give me a hug. We would kick him off the bench. We say, you are unrighteous. There's a payment that must be made. God is a righteous judge. He does not allow sin to go unpunished. Instead, in his grace and in his love, he took the punishment for us. Just as Nathan talked about last week from Romans 3, so we see the same theological point in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God absorbed the wrath. Chad reminded me this week that the way I at one point heard that word defined is standing before an enormous dam. I, I recently saw the, the dam between Lake Kiwi and Lake, Lake Jocassee. It's this massive wall, this massive stone wall between those two lakes. Just huge. I didn't want to go anywhere close because just the idea of so much water being on the other side of that seemed intimidating to me. So if you're standing on just on that side of the dam, imagine it breaking open and all that water starts rushing towards you. That's the wrath of God we deserve. That's what we have earned by our merits, by our sin. That's what we earn to be wiped away by God's wrath. God's propitiation through his son is a giant hole opening up between you and that water and every single drop of that wrath goes absorbed into the hole and not a single, but, single bit of that water lands on you. That's the propitiation, the absorbing of the wrath. That's, what, that's the payment that Christ made for us in Christ. 
love. Even our sin does not stop God's love. Even a necessary payment does not stop God's love. And even a painful payment did not stop God's love. Romans 5, 6, Christ died for the ungodly. The payment was not just a hole being opened up and water going in it. It was the Son of God himself dying in our place, standing on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ went through that agony, that pain, not just physical pain, but being separated from the Father so that you and I would never have to go through that separation. He was willing to pay the ultimate price. Even death itself was not a condition, was, could not stop the love of God. Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? If sin, death, payment, even a painful payment cannot stop the love of God, nothing can. It is an unconditional love. The Bible is filled, chock full of expressions of this love. I talk about how the English language, we struggle with this. We just have one word. The Hebrew's got a really good word, hesed. Uh, it talks about that. The ESV usually translates it steadfast love. It is this unconditional Deniable, ungiving, not, not giving up unconditional love. Isaiah 54 10 is just one of the hundreds of places it comes. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. God's love is more permanent than the mountains. It is more likely that the mountain is going to be picked up and thrown into the ocean than God's love to be changed or removed. In the New Testament, the word we get is the word agape. In Romans 8.38, just one of the hundreds of times that word, this word shows up. For I am sure, it's our memory verse for the month. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those who are in Christ, those who have become his children, people who are Christians, there is absolutely nothing. That's the point of all his long list. Death nor life, angels are nothing can separate you from the love of God. C.S. Lewis might be the one that gets the credit for bringing the ancient Greek forms of love into, into our kind of generation. His book, for The Four Loves, he walks through those four things. Storge, a, kind of a love between a parent and a child. Eros is the romantic love. Philio is the love between brothers. Agape is this highest form of unconditional love. Of course, they all overlap in many ways, and things like marriages have, the, 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 we have all those things together. That's the ideal. But God's way of proclaiming his love is this unconditional, this hesed, this agape, this love that doesn't quit, a love that doesn't stop, a love that never gives up. And the Bible doesn't just tell you that's how he loves, it shows it to us. You don't have to read very much in the Bible to come across an incredible story on one page or another of God's amazing love for his people. Just consider the length that he went through to redeem a people of, uh, out of Egypt, all the plagues he brought on Egypt in order to redeem and pull out his people Israel from slavery. 
Take the prophet Hosea in God's invite, calling Hosea to live out a very uh, a living parable of sorts, of loving a woman he knew would turn his, her back on him, and yet he kept pursuing her over and over again. He says, my love is like this. It never gives up on you. The Bible shows us places like the teaching of Jesus, where he, he describes this young man in rebellion against his father who wishes his father was dead and ask for an inheritance so that he can go and live a life he wants. He gets the inheritance, goes into our far country, squanders all his money in reckless living, and only in desperation, only in, in near starvation, is he willing to come back to his father, knowing that maybe, if, if maybe his father would let him be a servant. His father runs out to greet him, throws his arms around him, and says, this is my son who was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. The Bible is full, not just of descriptions, but of displays of God's unconditional love. God's love is far beyond our greatest hopes, dreams, or imaginations. Over and over again, the Bible wants you to see there's no other experience, no other category, nothing that could possibly compare to the love God has for us in Christ. We're narrowing down. I, I wanted to just, rather than just giving you a definition, I wanted to just show you love. But I do think it's helpful now to thought about that. Think about what, what is love? What is love as the Bible tells you? Def, Webster will tell you all kinds of different things. What, is the, what does the Bible say is love? Here's the definition I've settled on. Love is giving, not taking. Love is giving of yourself for the good of another. Love is giving of yourself for the good of another. Jesus is the ultimate display of that. Galatians 2.20, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The definition of love is giving for their good. Giving, not taking. Giving so that ultimately what's good happens to them, even if, and especially if, it costs me something. Giving for others' good, even if it costs me something. Love is self-giving, which makes it the opposite of pride, which is self-seeking. Love is giving away. Self-seeking pride is taking for my own benefit. Pride is wanting what's best for me. Love is, wants what, what, is wanting what's best for me for you. There, pride is, is the deepest, the original sin, and it is the deepest, rudest, deep, most deeply rooted sin in our lives. When a baby is in a womb, all curled up, we call that the fetal position, right? All, all bent up on itself. And I think there's a metaphor here for maturity. As infants, as children, as immature people, we live bent in on ourselves, focused only on ourselves, thinking about my needs and my desires and my wants, and what it means to grow up in Christ, what it means to mature is to straighten up and quit looking at our own belly buttons long enough to care about somebody else and to seek the glory of our God above. We live in a society of navel gazers. We are so tempted to live in the fetal position only focused on our desires and what we want, and that is pride and it is the opposite of love. And it is not how our God 
lived and displayed love to us. He came to earth to show you just how forward-looking he was, how overflowing he was. He came to show you and I an overflowing love, seeking good of another. And we're called to imitate that love. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, quit looking at your own navel, look to the interest of others. I think this definition and the display of God's love in the Bible overcomes some popular misconceptions about what love is. And in our world, love is primarily thought of something you can just fall into and fall out of, right? Like it's an accident. Today I tripped on the curb. Today, the other, yesterday I fell in love. These are like, that's how the world talks about love. Love that is unconditional and biblical is not a fall in and fall out. Love is a verb. Love is an action. Love is a choice. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me is not something, the Son of God didn't just stumble out of heaven accidentally and fall into an opportunity to love you. This was a choice he made to display his love. Love is not just a feeling. It is a choice. It is an action. And at the same time, it is not a robotic action that we take without feeling. Unconditional love doesn't mean that God doesn't have affection for his people. Just consider all the metaphors God uses for love, marriage being the primary, primary one. Ephesians 5, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the, the description, the definition of love. The very next verse, Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. He loves his church, the bride. He loves his church like a bride. Isaiah 49.15 uses a different image, the image of a woman with her newborn child. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget. God says, you are, a, a woman is more likely to forget her, her newborn baby than the father is to, for, is to forget his child. Psalm 103, 13 uses the father-son relationship. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. John 15, 15 uses the friendship relationship. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, but the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. I have called you friends. God is affectionate. He is tender. He is caring for his people. God's love is unconditional. It is a choice. It is an action. It is affection. But perhaps the most common misconception is that God's love always looks the same. I said at the beginning that maybe the, the, the pervasive theology of our world is that to love somebody is just to affirm them. Whatever you desire, whatever you want, if you, to show love to them is just to say, I support you. Listen, as parents, if you always support every desire and request your children have. Do you know what that's called? Child abuse. <laughs> Mom, I want to play in the road. Dad, I want to play with your nail gun. Like, these are things we need to say no to. If you never, the most loving word you can say to your child sometimes is no. And yet, when it comes to God, we get offended if he says no to us. The most loving thing God can say to us sometimes is no. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, my son. So this is affection. This is caring, endearing. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines who? The Lord disciplines the one 
he loves. Discipline is a form of love. Justice can be a form of love. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do in a relationship is draw a boundary and say, this isn't healthy. We're, this isn't going to work. We, we've got to find a way to get healthy. Love is pursuing what's best, what's good for somebody else, even at cost to yourself. There may be relationships where no is the best thing you can do to show them love. Giving of ourselves, giving to one another, that's love. Sometimes love is cushiony, it's comfortable, it's encouraging, but pillows don't sharpen iron. Iron sharpens iron. Sometimes iron is the most loving thing we can do. Of course, it takes wisdom to know what type of love you're supposed to show, and God is the God of wisdom, as we'll see in a few weeks. God's the, God is the solution to our love problem. If we, if we have a heart, if we have, again, all of us do, but if we have a relationship where love is a struggle, the solution to that is delighting in and enjoying God's love more. I've given you just a drop in the bucket of God's incredible love for us. And the more you delight in that love, the more you marinate in that love, abide in that love, the more your tank is going to be filled to love other people. The concept we have of weighing out pros and cons and saying, okay, this person's done a lot of good for me, therefore I love them, is completely backwards. The only way you're ever going to love anybody else is not by something good in them. It's by receiving the good from the Heavenly Father. When we've been loved by God, when we know that love, that's what fills us up to then love our neighbor. So love is a challenge. God's love is unconditional. And our love is empowered by and modeled on God's love for us. Our problem is not experiencing love deeply enough to be able to share that love with other people. Our love is empowered by and modeled on God's love for us. And that can go on the screen. There you go. If we have, if we have a problem, we've just in foster care done just enough trauma training to know that a, a young child, you know what happens to a young child if they don't experience love at a young age, the first few years of their life, it, it is, it is, it's abusive. They don't understand love. There, there's something missing, and it leads to all kinds of disorders later in life because they haven't experienced love. They can't love other people because they have never experienced love. That is the problem for us as Christians. If we have not experienced the love of God, we can't show the love to other people. God's love has been modeled for us and is empowered through us. Jesus' own love, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's all you got to do. Just love people like Jesus loved you. <laughs> That's hard. How's it going to happen? God inside of us. The first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. Only God's Spirit can empower us to love other people. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he cannot see. In a very real way, we display the love of the invisible God to those around us when we show love because we say, this is the love I've experienced and I'm sharing with others. If I had to summarize everything we've said so far, I would just use words of the Bible. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Many of you watching us um, wrestle with an opportunity to show love right now in the form of a 16-month-old that's been in our house for a while through foster care. Uh, this little boy, if I had to put the pros and cons before you, the pros are he is stinking cute, isn't he? 
He is absolutely adorable. If I had to put the con before you, let me tell you this. He doesn't know how to sleep through the night. <laughs> and it gets old after a while. And if you just, if we just, we just have been so wrestling with this, like, he's, he's really cute, like, and really fun. But then there's 2 a.m., and it's not so cute, and not so fun. And we wrestle with that, and we struggle with which, which ways, and so we have to come back to time and time again, what is the source of our love for this child? And any, fill in any relationship you have that challenges you, that pushes you. What, what is it that I'm drawing on? Where's the fountain I'm going to to, to, to get love to be able to share with them. Is it just the cute snuggles from the 16-month-old? <laughs> That'll get you by for a little while. I'm going to tell you, it doesn't work at 2 a.m. That well is very shallow, and it runs very dry. And we come back time and time again to be reminded of a heavenly Father who loved us when we were doing far worse, far worse than just not sleeping. We were ungodly. And he loved us before the foundation of the world. And he promised us a love that we would then receive one day, that we would be adopted into his family and experience a love that's greater than anything else the world has to offer. And if you know that love, though imperfectly, you can share that love with those around us. I pray that through Christ, you would have experienced that love, that you've been raised up out of the fetal position to glorify God, to give gratitude, thanksgiving back to the one who saved you, and to overflow with love to your neighbor, vertical and horizontal, loving God and loving neighbor, because you have been loved. And if you know that love, you have something to share with those around you, and that will transform you and transform the world. Love others, love God, because God first loved you.